This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Season 2, Episode 11 of the Fly the W670 Podcast. Buck O'Neill and Ernie Banks. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the Fly the W Podcast. And in this segment, to honor Black History Month, Crawley continues his conversation with Bob Kendrick, President of the Negro League Baseball Museum. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, we're glad to have back Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, narrator of MLB's newly released animated series, Undeniable Stories from the Negro Major Leagues, and host of the wonderful podcast, Black Diamonds. Welcome back, Bob. I know you're excited. Super Bowl tomorrow and your Chiefs are going for it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a lot of excitement, as you can well imagine, brewing here in Kansas City and uh, with the Chiefs hopefully winning a, another Super Bowl title and bringing it home to Kansas City and, and all the things that are happening in and around the museum. You touched on the new animated series, Undeniable Stories from the Negro Leagues, that I'm so proud to lend my voice to. And animation is such an amazing way to bring the story of the Negro Leagues to life because there wasn't a lot of film footage around the Negro Leagues and particularly game film footage. And so as a storyteller, you try to paint a picture uh, of what these players look like and these scenes from these games. And now through animation, you can actually bring it to life. So can you imagine Buck O'Neill, who oftentimes told the story of the epic showdown between Satchel and Josh Gibson in the 1942 Negro League World Series? And he did. He made you feel like you were there. But now you can be there. Because through animation, you can create that scene and you can see the mythical-like power of Josh Gibson and the flamboyance and charisma of Satchel and the length and the speed of his pitches. All of that can now be, can kind of be brought to life through this animation process. But we're just so thrilled to have partnered with Major League Baseball to create these animated shorts that are being released this year. And then also... The fact that the Negro Leagues are now going to be included in the Sony PlayStation video game, MLB The Show 23. And and people are super excited because Buck O'Neill is one of the eight players that we will be introduced in the video game this year. We'll introduce eight players each year for the next four years. And so people will get an opportunity to play as these legendary figures from the Negro Leagues. But we also created many documentary series inside the video game so you can learn more about these players. And this is all exciting because, Crawley, as you can well imagine, 
our biggest challenge as a history museum and a cultural institution is how do I make this history relevant to an ever-changing generation of young people? And, and I can't wait for them to come to me at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I've got to go to them and, and, and I have to go to them in the modes and mediums in which they are accustomed to getting their information so that hopefully we can get them now to engage and fall in love with this story of these legendary ball players, just like you and I have fallen in love with these stories. And so it's been an exciting run for the museum, but it certainly can be punctuated with a Chiefs Super Bowl win. <laughs> As a Bears fan, I barely know what that is. I'm almost 50, Bob, and the last time they won, I was eight years old. So it's been a while, but I got to tell you, Bob, my jaw dropped when I saw the announcement of MLB The Show because for everything you've done, it's just it's been phenomenal to, to reach to the young people like you have. But there is no medium greater than MLB The Show when it comes to baseball fans as far as reach. That is, I talk, Bob, to a lot of Cubs minor league players and, and all of them to a T play that game. Yeah. I work at a high school, every kid, you know, even if they don't even, they don't even play baseball, they play more of the show than they do the actual physical yeah, game yeah, of baseball. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's what we're trying. That's a, that's exactly the audience that we're trying to connect with. And, and I think we have a great opportunity to do so uh, just on my way. I'm actually in my office today recording this with you. And just on my way upstairs, there were a number of high school kids who were in the museum and all of them, were aware of this inclusion of the Negro Leagues in the video game. And every one of them was excited. And just as you mentioned, I asked us, well, do any of you guys play baseball? Not one of them play baseball. Yeah, but they are excited about this game. And so I do think we have a chance to help them fall in love with these legends of the game as well. And this incredible story that we are now preserving here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Well, I'm happy for you and your team, and you guys just continue to do great things. Last time we talked, Bob, you know, we, we were talking about the great Buck O'Neill and his career as, as both a player and a manager. And uh, the one thing that we talked about is how important he was to the city of Chicago. And there's, you know, whether it was from being the first MLB black coach, whether it was his scouting, whether everything he did, so important to the organization. But the one relationship that he created and the one player that he, you know, got the Cubs to sign was Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. That is the face of the organization. And that does not happen with Buck without Buck O'Neill. And, so, and, and so when we talk about Ernie, he was born in a segregated part of Dallas, Texas. Growing up, he was a great athlete, but he really wasn't into baseball. Is that right? Yeah, no, Ernie was a tremendous athlete there in Dallas and probably was a better softball player than he was a baseball player at that time, but a multi-sport, uh, played basketball. And, you know, Ernie was a tremendous athlete and the great cool Papa Bell, uh -huh, who was managing the junior Monarchs or the Monarchs' second team, saw Ernie playing down in Dallas, Texas, and instantly saw something in Ernie that sparked him to call Buck O'Neill and say, hey, Buck, I think I got one for you. And Buck said, can he pick it? Cool said, yeah, he can pick it. And Buck O'Neill reaches out to Ernie Banks and he signs Ernie Banks, basically sight unseen, 
based on Cool Papa Bell's recommendation, along with the recommendation of the late great William Bill Blair. Skinny Legs Blair, former Negro Legal who was also there in Dallas who knew Ernie quite well. And Bill Blair ran before he passed away a, a weekly black newspaper called the Elite News. Now spell elite, but the Negro Leaguers announced, they pronounce it Elite. The Elite News still produces a weekly African-American paper there through his sons now that Mr. Blair had passed away. And Mr. Blair put Ernie, got Ernie two suits and they put him on the bus and they sent him to Kansas City to Buck O'Neill where Ernie would then join the great Kansas City Monarchs and begin a kindred relationship with Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill Crawley was Ernie's surrogate father. Yeah, he really was. He was Ernie's surrogate father. He took care of Ernie. Ernie will say that Buck taught him how to play the game. Buck will say that no, Ernie knew how to play the game. I taught him how to love the game. Uh-huh. And, and that love, of course, exuded throughout his career with the Monarchs and then on over, of course, to the Chicago Cubs. But you're right. It does not happen without the tutelage of one John Jordan Buck O'Neill. And, and when I talk about him being a surrogate father, I really mean it because Buck taught him social graces. He taught him how to dress. And I tell people all the time, if you didn't know Buck O'Neill, but you knew Ernie Banks, you knew Buck O'Neill. Uh-huh. And because Ernie just embodied that spirit of Buck. And, and he did grow to love this game. And you could see it in the way that he played this game, the infectiousness of the joy that he brought to the game was, was pretty special. And a lot of that started to develop during his time here in the Negro Leagues with the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, I, I, was, I was listening to your great episode on Ernie on your Black Diamonds podcast, and it was mentioned that Buck worked constantly with Ernie, oh. and Ernie loved it. He, you know, he loved that more than he loved to actually play in the game, hitting them ground balls and all that stuff. Did Buck hot, do that? The did, hot summer heat of Kansas <laughs> City, man. Yeah, just one ground ball after another so he could work on his fielding. And Buck was determined. He saw the greatness in Ernie as well. And so now it's about pulling it out of him. And, and of course, by the time Ernie is with the Monarchs, the opportunity to move to the major leagues was real. You know, this wasn't a pipe dream anymore. You already had the major leagues integrated. And so Buck worked tirelessly with Ernie, helping him hone his skills. And Ernie just talked about the more work he put in, the more he loved it. Yeah, he didn't want to stop. And, and it paid off handsomely for, for Mr. Cub. Did Buck do that for any other players or was there just a special relationship between the two? Well, there was certainly a very special bond between Ernie and Buck. And Ernie was a young player. You know, a lot of the Monarch stars were seasoned ball players. So you're probably not going to put in that kind of work as much with them. But Buck was always willing to. So if a player wanted it, Buck was always there for him. And I think that's another one of those traits we talked about the last time when you and I got together about why Buck was such a great manager, because he was willing to put in the work with those young players to help develop them. 
He saw the potential in them and he wanted to do everything he possibly could to try and bring that out of them, which it also included instilling confidence in their abilities. Because believe it or not, when Ernie got to Kansas City, he was shy and, and somewhat of an introvert. And, and no one would believe that because, well, you know, by the time it was all said and done, Ernie never stopped talking. <laughs> but 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 you're right that, that he he is known at 19 he's a shy introvert and like you said if you know ernie you know buck and a lot of those let's play too it's a beautiful day for a ball game the sun is shining that's buck o'neill's personality oh, no, that, oh no, that, no no doubt about it that sunny disposition was the spillover effect of being around buck o'neill and not only did Ernie have it, Lou Brock had the same thing. You know, by the time Buck brings Lou to Chicago. And, and of course, we know how that worked out. The Cubs would eventually send Lou to St. Louis, where Lou immediately takes off and becomes eventually a Hall of Famer. Uh, and, and so that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. <laughs> but both Lou and Ernie were Buck's surrogate sons, and, and they, they basically mimicked the man that they were so drawn to and who was so inspirational in their careers. And, and Crawley, that relationship didn't end after they were done playing baseball. They remained connected to Buck. Anytime Buck O'Neill would call Lou and Ernie to ask them to come to Kansas City to do something, there was no hesitation. You can best believe they were here. Yeah, they were absolutely here. And I don't know of two other individuals, maybe beyond myself, who were more disappointed when Buck didn't get in the Hall of Fame in 2006. They were genuinely disappointed and hurt, just as I was. It was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do when I walked in the conference room adjacent to this office and tell Buck O'Neill he didn't get enough votes to get in the Hall of Fame. And Ernie Banks said, I would gladly give up my place in the Hall of Fame for wow. Buck to be there. You know, so they, they were hurt. They maintained that relationship. This wasn't just a baseball relationship. No, no, no. This was a relationship between those who were as close as blood family members. And, and I'm very fortunate. I was there for the ride. I got to experience and have wonderful times with both Ernie Banks and Lou Brock right there with Buck O'Neill. And I was just telling the story to a reporter this morning, a guy who's writing out of Hot Springs, Arkansas, where I'm going to be speaking there in April. And we're taking a traveling exhibition down to Hot Springs. And he asked me about my role here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I can tell you, Crawley, there are so there have been so many pinch me moments. You know, it comes with the territory. It's a, it's a job that you do and you try to do it to, your, to the best, very best of your ability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply but I'm still a fan. And when every now and then the receptionist would yell out to me in my office and say, Mr. Kendrick, Ernie Banks is on the phone for you. 
And I, I have to think to myself, Ernie Banks is on the phone for me. You know, Lou Brock is on the phone for me. Henry Aaron is on the phone for me. You know, you can't help but pinch yourself. And in those moments, as you can well imagine, are all so very special. And so uh, I just relish in the times that I got to spend with Ernie and his presence was always so meaningful and his support of this museum was always tremendous. And obviously his love for his guy, Buck O'Neill remained steadfast until the day he passed away. Yeah. And, and Ernie, you think about his formative years. He's 19 years old when he comes to Kansas City. And last time you and I talked, Buck, you know, said it was the center of the universe to him, yeah, you know. Yeah. For, for Ernie Banks, how was it for him coming in and, and seeing the Kansas City Monarchs coming from that segregated area of Texas? He's blown away. And he said to the day he died that his experiences playing in the Negro Leagues were the greatest experiences in baseball he ever had. You think about this, Crawley. All of a sudden, he is immersed into Black culture at a level that he had never experienced before. He is surrounded by enormous talent playing for the Monarchs. And then he's thrust into the culture of Kansas City, that center of the universe that we talked about where all the great jazz stars were walking around and they're at the game and he's right there in their midst. And, and he's now becoming a star as well. And the, the fan base that followed the Monarchs, falling in love with their Monarchs and a young ball player named Ernest Banks. You know, so yeah, no, it was mind blowing for him. And, and I think that was part of the reason that when he get signed by the Cubs. He didn't want to leave. He did not want to leave Kansas City. And I think a lot of that, Crawley, was because he was comfortable. He was comfortable here. He is around people who look just like him. And he's in an environment where he could be himself. He knew that once he left the Kansas City Monarchs, even if it was to go fulfill this dream of playing in the major leagues, that he was going to be isolated. That was this constant fear of isolation. And that was going to be a natural byproduct of the early transition for those black players into the major leagues. They were going to be totally isolated. So here in Kansas City, they were going to play a game. Then everybody's going to get cleaned up. They're going to come eat dinner. And then they go into the nightclubs, they're going to listen to some jazz, and they're just going to have a great time, and he could just be himself. When he gets to the north side there to join the Cubs, he already knew that he's going to be isolated. After the games, his teammates were going to go into their own world, and he's going to be left to literally fend for himself. Fortunately, the great Gene Baker was also there with the Cubs. And Gene Baker and Ernie Banks were relegated to the South Side, where they had to fend for themselves during that era of segregation. And so his fears were absolutely grounded in truth. But he, eventually, this all started to change. But he, he knew early on he was going to enter into a world of complete isolation as it related to his baseball family. 
Right. And, and, and so, you know, he plays in Kansas City in 1950, Ernie Banks. But in 51 and 52, he serves his country. He's in the military. He comes back to the Monarchs in 53. But he kind of struggles in that 53 season. He gets hurt. Uh, you know, he's married at this time now. And he leaves the Monarchs. And Buck O'Neill had to go to Texas to bring him back. Do you know what Buck said to get him back? You know, I can only imagine what Buck said to get him back. Because, you know, not only did Buck have to go get Ernie, he also went and got Billy Williams. And, and so it seemed like Buck was always bringing these Cubs, Stars, and Hall of Famers back into the fold after they had kind of given up on the game and the grind of the game. And, you know, this game is tough, man. This game is tough. It's a kid's game. But, man, you got to be a man to play it. And you're going to go through those dry spells and things seem to happen that had not happened previously. As you mentioned, he goes through a series of injuries. He's not playing up to the level in which he probably thought he should have been playing. That's the grind of the game. And I guarantee you every star who's ever played this game have gone through that and have probably have gone through moments of doubt when they were ready to give up on this game too because this game is a tough game to play. And yet it is still a sport crawler that everybody thinks they can play it. It's yeah. probably the most difficult game of all of the major sports to play. Because you think about this, it's the only sport really of the major sports where you are on offense and you don't have the ball. No, no, no. The other team got the ball when you're on offense. That's how difficult this game is. Yet, as Buck O'Neill would say, you could have two 80-year-old men sitting on the couch watching a baseball game and a guy drops a pop fly, and the first words that come out of their mouth, I could have caught that. Uh -huh. <laughs> but if, if, if LeBron James misses a dunk, we're not all saying we could have done that. You know, but that's baseball. That's the beauty of baseball, because it is a game that everyone thinks that they can play, even though it is the most challenging game of them all. And so, yeah, you're going to go through these ruts it's inevitable. And it's about how you ultimately build a moxie to get back in the batter's box, you know, dust yourself off, get back in there and go to work. And so Ernie quit and Buck went and got it. And, and uh, you know, I am sure with Ernie being as young as he was, Buck wanted to nurture him back and instill that belief that, yes, you can do this, son. I know you can do it. I see it in you. And Ernie comes back and, and things start to change. Right. He has a very successful end of the 1953 season. And then he joins the Jackie Robinson barnstorming team. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Jackie Ooh. Robinson barnstorming teams. Oh, man, that team was loaded. That team was loaded with stars from the Negro Leagues. And Ernie talked about being surrounded by these this incredible group. Uh, of African-American stars who were touring the country with Jackie Robinson, filling up ballparks everywhere they went, playing against a lot of different teams, including some other Negro League teams, and basically beating everybody that they came up against. So it was a dynamite team. And Ernie said he, he enjoyed that experience. And I think when you play around that kind of talent and you can kind of hold your own, that also instills belief that you – belong. Because at some point, I do think you question whether or not you belong. 
Uh huh. And then when you get out there and you do it on that kind of stage, you know, yeah, now you know as an athlete, okay, I'm built for this. I can handle this. I'm good enough to be here. And I do think that tour helped Ernie quite a bit, you know, instilling the additional confidence in his abilities playing against and with and against the creme de la creme of the sport, particularly as related to, to black baseball. Yeah, yeah, Larry Doby, not Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella, and then and then to sit there and 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 with Jackie Robinson telling Ernie, you can play in the major leagues. I mean, that just had to do so oh, much for uh, his competence. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And Jackie had gone the same path. He had come through the Kansas City Monarchs, albeit he was only here for five months when he gets his breakthrough and, and joins the Brooklyn Dodgers. But I got to believe again, if Jackie Robinson said you can play in the major league, then you all of a sudden believe, okay, I can play in the major league. You know, I don't know if there's a much better endorsement from the guy who broke the color barrier and who had already had success at the major league level telling you that, yeah, you belong, you can do this. Now, I think that for me, you know, is that you mentioned it earlier, when it came time and people realized, whether it was Jackie Robinson, whether it was Buck O'Neill, everybody realizes, Ernie, you belong in the majors. Ernie didn't want to go. He, he was happy in Kansas City. Yeah. How was it that you think that Buck and, and some of the Kansas City teammates were able to convince Ernie to go to Chicago? Well, as we know, Buck was one that's saying, Ernie, you got to go. You have to go. Because this is what's going to allow others to follow you. And I'm sure that put even more pressure on a young Ernie Banks because you don't want to be the one that becomes a roadblock for others to have the opportunities. He had already witnessed what Jackie had done, which created the opportunity for him. And I think there is a sense of obligation to make sure that you're doing your absolute best to keep that door open for others. So yeah, so there's, I think, even more pressure on him as he's now trying to make this very hard decision to break out of his comfort zone to go do something not only for him, but for his people. You know, and I right. think, Crawley, that's the thing that is lost on a lot of fans that not only were these guys trying to break through and play in the major leagues, but every one of those early black baseball pioneers were essentially carrying the weight of a race of people on their shoulders. They felt that. They knew they had to succeed because if they didn't, it was somehow going to be a stain against the African-American community. And whether that was real or not, they felt that. And you can hear from the likes of Ernie and Henry Aaron uh, Monty Irvin, they just knew that they had to excel because they felt the pressure that if they didn't succeed, it may limit the possibilities of someone else getting the opportunity. That's a lot of weight, man, to go out and play a game. And we've talked about this before, a game that in it, by its crux is a game of failure. This is a game of failure and you feel like you cannot fail because if you fail, someone else may not get the opportunity. And so Ernie was very well, very well aware that of those who had opened the door for him. And now it was his time to go 
and then also leave that door open for whoever might follow him. And, and one of the coolest things about Ernie's time in Kansas City is that his roommate was the great Elston Howard, the first black Yankee. Yeah, he and Ellie were roommates. They stayed at the Street Hotel here in Kansas City, which was the Black-owned hotel right down on the corner, just uh, beyond my office there at 18th and Paseo here in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. And Ernie used to say they would stay up at night, kind of wondering who would be the first to get to the major league because it was real now. And so even though there was hesitation, he was still dreaming about the possibilities. Right. Yeah, he was still dreaming about the possibilities because he knew it was real.